Hello, this is Gary Michaels and Ernie Tennis, my co-host each and every Thursday on our uh, cross-cultural talk program concentrating on ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution. And just before we get into the body of the program, which we recorded last week with our special guest, Ruth Sermon, on uh, anger management. Anger management, yeah. yes, that's needed individually and internationally. It is. Uh, Ernie, uh, you were moved to organize uh, a special session uh, that's going to help a lot of people, and it's coming up next Thursday. Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, next Thursday night at City Hall, 7 to 9 p.m., August 3rd, there'll be a special session of the community to hear about um, the situation for Lebanese people uh, bringing their relatives here uh, from Canada, from Lebanon to Canada. And also, as we talk, Gary, uh, OHIP has a new uh, program for counseling and helping uh, people for Lebanese and I thought as we talked that maybe next week's session we'll invite people to bring information on what can be done uh, to help each other and, and um, humanitarian in a caring way so it'll be next Thursday night and we're going to be doing a, a public service announcement it'll yeah. be on the media and uh, you uh, there are a couple of people who are behind this with you uh, in helping you organize this all perhaps you, uh, you'd like to mention a couple of names before yeah, we yeah well I want to thank Bill Ayad the community affairs chair of the PN Carlton Conservative Association is uh, really assisting uh, thanks to uh, a lot of other people uh, from the firm uh, to try to get the uh, some people out from the government, it was very important. Right. And I, of course, I talked to the um, uh, the Embassy of Lebanon, uh, Osama Kashab. He's very supportive. Uh, Warren Creed's immigration lawyer, Eli Nasrallah, well, Colonel Drapol. I'll be moderating the panel. So there's a lot of uh, different people involved. Sama Siddiqui, uh, cross cultural roundtable and security. So there's a lot of people involved trying to pull this together. And there'll be a lot of uh, information hopefully over the next week, including on Chin. Next Thursday night, Ottawa City Hall gets underway at 7 p.m. 7 p.m., and you'll hear more about it here on Chin in Ottawa. Cross-Cultural Talk Program. It's uh, Chin Radio, of course, at 97.9, this being a Thursday. It's our uh, program on ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, and uh, co-hosting the show with me, as he has been for the past 77 weeks. This is week number 78. Yes. Ernie Tannis. 78th show. Wow. And neither one of us has gotten any older in all that time, Ernie. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> we got younger attitude. You got it. Listen, uh, just to uh, let our uh, our listeners know that this program uh, was recorded last week, actually the same day that uh, the Silent March was held from uh, the Human Rights Memorial the, to the War Memorial. And it was uh, it was quite a, it was quite a program we had last Thursday. Yes, yeah, got a lot of got more phone calls from that program <laughs> than any other. It was generally a respectable, respected show. Yeah, and it just some like a lot of divergent views. But yeah. now today, uh, you as always have come up with a wonderful guest to join us this afternoon. 
uh, to talk about a number of issues, but I think anger management is the one we're really going to tackle today. Yeah, right? are you mad about that subject? Not, a, no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> well, Ernie, please introduce our guest. Yes, well, well, ADR can mean a dignified resolution. It also means a very delightful Ruth. Ruth Sermon, known each other for years. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you. Uh, Ruth has done some incredible work. In fact, um, um, when he was talking about the show last week, uh, um, you went to the um, the march for the Arab and Jewish women initiated this march on uh, talking about peace building and conflict resolution in the Middle East, and uh, you participated in that I march. Did. Yeah, nice to sort of leave it up to you how you might want to fit that experience into the subject matter today. Thank you. And... Um, but uh, just a week before that, um, I was looking for a guest, and I talked to Don Hush, and he called me out of the blue. I said, geez, I'd like to have someone talk about anger management. And, I, and he had, um, by the time you got back to me, I bumped into Richard Jackman and his wife, uh, and um, it was really terrific, Julie Demery. And they came in and talked about the McLaren Center and... Uh, then from then, you and I talked, and you've done a lot of work over the years. I wanted to tell the listeners some of your background, and you do a lot of work in anger management. And uh, we, as Gary said about the show last week, anger is from the individual to the international level. And I'd asked you for today's show to talk about the individual, institutional, and international aspects of solving problems and dealing with anger. Um, Ruth provides mediation services, group facilitation, training and consulting services, an experienced family group conferencing facilitator and trainer, work with adults and children in conflict, expertise in both small and large groups, um, government, family, criminal court, organizational, school, church. I think we're going to talk about faith-based intervention and community. Having conducted more than uh, 150 training programs in, in all these areas, including interest-based negotiation, organizational conflict, uh, assistance perspective, harassment, um, restorative justice, um, facilitating meetings, dealing with bullying, and constructive parenting skills the more. So that's quite a vast uh, topic, Ruth. I wonder if you can tell our listeners a little bit about your own background, if you would like to talk about your cultural background too, um, and how you got into this field, and what's your your purpose or your sense of philosophy? What inspires you to do this work and maintain it? So I'll just leave it to you. Take your time and uh, please explain that. Thanks, Ernie. Uh, first off, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, and it's it's a, a delightful uh, opportunity to see you again and to work with you. Um, in terms of, of what got me into this field, it's interesting because my background is actually environmental biology and chemistry. Oh. Somebody told me once that they were having a hard time seeing how that led into being a mediator. Um, and somebody else said, oh, well, that, that, uh, that, that works. Because uh, I had explained that I used to work in wildlife toxicology, so I worked with toxic chemicals in, in uh, pesticide levels and various things like that. And uh, one of the students on a course said, oh, so you used to work with toxic chemicals, and now you work with toxic organizations. <laughs> yes. I thought it was an interesting um, connection, and it was one that I personally had never made up until that point. My general response to how did I get into this field is that I have four kids. Mm. <laughs> and as a parent of four kids, and particularly as a single parent of four kids, there's no shortage of opportunities to practice conflict management. And uh, that that is essentially how I, I transitioned from the science field into the uh, conflict management and mediation field. I was desperately trying to figure out how to manage four kids and ended up taking a parenting course, which was all about conflict management. And as they say, it all fell wow. into place from that. Um, and I discovered a career that I have absolutely fallen in love with. 
and I feel very, very honored to actually get paid to do something that I love to do. So um, in that sense, that's kind of how I got here. Uh, I find the science background has a really interesting, uh, it brings an interesting dynamic to the conflict management field in that as in, in, in biology, we work from a systems perspective. We look at ecosystems, we look at um, uh, nutritional systems, we look at uh, biological systems and how they function. And now I work in an area where I work a lot with organizations and I very much work from a systems perspective in that sense. Well, how many years have you been in the field? I'm not trying to get your age, but I just want to know. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm still 29, Ernie, just like you. <coughs> I just changed currency. I was 29 American for a very, very long time, but the exchange rate is no longer um, particularly, it's, it's no longer a, a good fix. So I've switched. I'm now 29 euros. So there you go. From Fahrenheit to Celsius, right? Absolutely. Well, Somebody- Gary and I, you know, we're married and uh, we have children. Now we have grandchildren. Mm-hmm. They're so much fun. Mm-hmm. They say we should have had them first. Now, yeah. Uh, yeah. Would you- yeah. <laughs> That's true. That. We, that. Well, Gary said that many times on the show since day one. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, when he started the idea of this show, I, I couldn't believe we're still doing it. But we talk about every day in our own families, in our own communities. Mm-hmm. We're always faced with this issue of conflict and uh, we don't get a lot of airtime sort of to deal with it. And, uh, well, you know, interestingly, and uh, Ruth, you made, like four children. I mean, there's a challenge right there. And then being a single parent, like you're taking this all on by yourself, basically, aren't you? When you have with to the, with a little help. Okay, but I mean, what are the ages? Uh, right now, my kids are 26, 24, 21, and 18. Wow, and they're still kids, right? Absolutely. They'll always be kids. They'll always be my kids, but they're very much incredibly uh, interesting and fun young adults, and I have an immense amount of uh, respect for my kids. That's wonderful. And a lot of fun with them. Well, they yeah. say uh, for some situations, uh, bringing up a teenager is like a pot of gold at the end of a nightmare, but uh, it's, it, all, it's all, it all pays off at the Where end. Where the heck do you get all oh, these I don't lines, know. Somebody man. said I they should write Lebanese fortune cookies. I don't know. but Well, it's interesting. My grandmother had a, uh, and for those people who know me, they know that my grandmother was a very, very important part of my life. She was a matriarch in every <coughs> sense of the word, but she was also um, an elder in every sense of the word and she had uh, she had an incredible collection of kind of pithy one-liners and comments and she actually got me started collecting them many many years ago but she said to me once you can you will cry over you can either cry over your children when they're young when they're babies or you can cry over your children when they're young or you can cry over your children when they're teenagers or you can cry over your children when they're adults but at some point in your life you will cry over your children Mm. and I found that to be very very true and I think in a lot of contexts doesn't much matter where the conflict erupts at some point in our lives we're going to have to deal with difficult conflict situations whether it's within our family whether it's within our community whether it's within our faith uh, community whether it's in our world we're going to have to deal with difficult conflict situations and certainly when we look at the global situation today there's there's no doubt that we have some very serious situations that we're struggling to figure out what to deal with you know, and the um, that ties into um, me thinking that the other connection with your chemistry background is a phrase that I've always loved, is um, dealing with uh, these things is like, um, and I'm not very good at my science, so tell me if I have this right, but in a homogenous substance, like uh, water, each particle reflects the whole. And if each particle does reflect the whole, whether we're on an individual or institutional, and when I say institutional, I mean whether it's a family institution or a corporate or government or a nation or in the world, um, 
we're dealing with the same thing on a global scale. And you had some thoughts about, which I found interesting because I, I got two more phrases from you today. I hope they come out during the show. But when we talk about that that scale, that kind of thinking, because at the March, we're talking about this, the Middle East situation. There's many other conflicts everywhere in the world. And we hear about violence every day in our local communities and our neighborhoods everywhere. Um, if you step back and look at it all, Ruth, how do you see that big picture? You had some uh, interesting um, an interesting metaphor you used about a dance floor, which I had never heard before. I really liked that. Well, it was interesting. I, I, over the last, um, I guess I've been in the mediation field now since the early 90s, and or in the conflict management field, not specifically mediation, but the conflict management field since the early 90s. And I do a, a tremendous amount of training now. Um, and I find it's difficult sometimes to find a metaphor or an analogy that works for people. And this concept of the dance floor and a dance, that conflict is a dance, uh, seems to work. It seems to resonate with people. It certainly resonated with me when I, f- I first came up with it and, and heard it and integrated it. Uh, it's the idea that when we're talking about human relationships, there is no such thing as a snapshot that accurately depicts what the relationship is like. I can take a picture of what's going on between two individuals, but the second I finish clicking the shutter, the picture doesn't apply anymore because it's changed. And Peter Fryer has done a tremendous amount of work in this area. He calls human beings complex adaptive systems. We are integrated beings that are a whole lot of systems nested within each other. We have our circulatory system, our uh, nervous system, our sensory system, all of those all integrated into who we are as human beings and as individuals. And then we ourselves exist within other systems. We exist in our family systems, our work-related systems, our community systems, uh, our, our countries, our and our planet in terms of the global system. So when we talk about how people interact with each other, it's an ongoing iterative process. In other words, people constantly take in information about what's going on around them, and they process it, and they feed it back. And we base our actions and our our, um, behavior on the information that we've absorbed. So if we're constantly getting new information coming in, and we're constantly reacting to it and processing it, and then basing our behavior on what is coming in. There's no such thing as a simple sort of cause and effect relationship Mm -hmm. there. It's very much an integrated thing. And if you think about the dance floor and you think about people dancing together, in any dance, there's music. So in a conflict situation, the music is all of those outside forces, all of those outside dynamics that are, are coming in, many of which are beyond our control. So in a workplace, you have budget constraints. You have policies and procedures under which you have to operate. You have a mandate for your organization. You have direction from your leadership. Uh, You have um, collective agreements, perhaps if it's a unionized environment. You have all of these other things that create some of those outside forces. Then again, there's this other part that's the culture of the organization, the history, the tradition, how have people got along in the past, what type of events have happened, what are the factors that have contributed to whatever your current reality is now. And that exists both in a workplace, it exists in families, and it also exists on a global level when we start to look at what does the dance floor look like. So you've got the music playing, and then you've got these people And there may be a few people, there may be a lot of people, but ultimately you'll have people on the dance floor, some of whom will be dancing very, very well. They're in step with the music, they've got the whole thing down, and it's it's music that may be beautiful to watch. 
And then you may have a few people who are kind of stumbling around, stepping on people's toes. <laughs> and you may have a few wallflowers. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you have a, 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 the type of situation that happens in a conflict as well. If you think about a conflict as a dance, you may have people in the conflict who are coping with it very well and who are okay with what's going on. And you may have other people Mm -hmm. who are trying to avoid it, who are standing around the walls trying to stay off the dance floor. And you may have people who are stumbling through it, severely impacted, struggling to figure out how to function with the music that's going on, with the other dancers that are on the floor. There's, There's a lot of similarities between the dance and a conflict situation, on top of which the dance is constantly changing. And that can be a challenge for people as well. And then if you think about it, what happens if somebody decides to change the dance? Yes. And how does that impact yeah. on people? So yes. we're waltzing, you and I, and all of a sudden I decide to polka. What happens to you? A polka. <laughs> a polka. <laughs> you may poke me, absolutely. <laughs> that would be the conflict. Uh, talking, you know, when you, you talk about people going uh, getting out of step. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Ernie uh, and I are probably very familiar with the Depki, which is an Arabic thinking, dance. I was thinking of it. I am never in step with that. I'm stumbling all over everybody. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you said that. I was actually thinking it's an Arabic dance, so they hold hands. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, What is your uh, um, cultural background? Uh, Canadian. Oh, okay. um, in, in terms of, of uh, I mean, my, my, my ancestral ancestors, background yeah. is is uh, Irish, Welsh, English, uh, some French, a uh, little bit of, um, but pretty much the um, um, like a, a little UN. Yeah, pretty pretty much though that the the, the uh, British Isles sort of. Well, area. just in terms of the dancing patterns, because I like when you talked about the dance floor. Like the world could be a big dance floor. You said you know, mm-hmm. and the dance floor could be different for what where you are, but the dance type is different. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, it's you started making me think about this metaphor, like the era like, and the, the Greeks and uh, yeah, others, we hold, hands, hold hands, hands and we just follow the you know, and, and the then leader. other people like uh, in the West, yeah. maybe they're they keep distance from each other. And how does that metaphor play out when you look at uh, conflict? I, I hadn't thought of that. Well, before. it's it's an interesting piece because uh, there's often a tendency on the part of each of us as human beings to assume that whatever our norm is. In other words, the type of dance that we're used to or the way, you know, based on our values, our beliefs, our, our cultural upbringing, uh, whatever the, the mental models or paradigms that we operate under are normal. Now, the interesting thing is how many normals are there out there? Mm-hmm. I mean, I have my values and beliefs that I was brought up with and that I've personally, you know, refined over the years that helped to define who I am. So do you, Gary, so do you, and so does everyone else. Now, the, the interesting challenge in, in conflicts, and certainly as our world becomes smaller and smaller through technology, through um, ease of travel, and our, our countries become more diverse, both culturally and ethnically and on, on many different levels. One of the challenges is is not everybody operates from the same set of norms. Mm-hmm. So different cultures, different backgrounds. It doesn't mean that one is right. Mine certainly aren't the right set of norms and the one and only set of norms they're just mine and so part of the challenge that we we can run into is that if i perceive that my norms are the set of norms and the rest of the world really ought to operate by them then what happens when i run into somebody else who has a slightly different set of norms that from their perspective is perfectly right as well and we can end up with conflicts that come out of 
There, there's no malicious intent necessarily, just a different set of norms and a lack of understanding between people, a and lack of, of uh, uh, even a lack of knowledge that maybe the norms are different. And, you know, I, I think as we, uh, we experience life and we learn what we can about dealing with problems and communications that how we respond the fight flight freeze concept instead of flowing and say we have people have disunderstanding one of the ways to respond to fear or differences is is anger mm-hmm. and much. and i I'm, and sort of the role of anger in dealing with those issues um um, maybe as we segue, as we get into, uh, this is with uh, Ruth Sermon, I should say she's with canmediate.com, which is her website. It's 256-3852, area code 613. Um, because we're going to talk about anger management in more specifics in the second segment. But um, how do you start when you you uh, deal with anger? Because you don't have to vent. People are, if they're angry, they can't hear anything and and so on. What's your general perspective on anger? And I learned from the work with the Native people that anger is not, there's an emotion behind anger. So to understand the dynamic of, of anger. Well, anger's an interesting one because if you were to ask a group of people, how many people here have ever had their buttons pushed mm-hmm. and got upset? How many people yeah. have ever lost their cool? Uh, the only people who won't have their hands up are those who don't like to raise their hands. I mean, we've all encountered situations that have made us angry. Some people get angry very easily, very quickly. It's kind of the volcanic um, short fuse type of anger um, other people are the copers they they just absorb whatever it is that's happening and they take it in and they often internalize it and hold it and and it can it can fester and brew there for a long time it's it's kind of like the you know the old business where you take the pop bottle and you put your thumb over the top mm-hmm. and you start to shake it and the pressure starts to build and so when you meet somebody who's more of a coper and and less likely to react initially um, if they recognize that the pressure is building as things continue to happen as you know they continue to experience things that are upsetting to them then they have the opportunity to um, to make decisions about how they're going to deal with the situation person with a short fuse just has a tendency to blow and we've all encountered situations where somebody's lost it um, and started to yell or or whatever um, they they tend to do. Certainly, if you're the person who's lost their cool, if you think about what happens afterwards, well, first off, you know, when it happens, how does it feel to lose your cool? Um, You'll hear people say things like, well, it's uh, it's very tiring. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of energy that goes into getting angry. Uh, Other people will say, well, I, um, it actually felt good. I felt like it cleared the air. I felt like I said things that needed to be said. Yeah. And other people will say, well, yeah, but I also said things that I shouldn't have said. Uh, because when we start to, when we lose our cool and we start to, to vent, we're not necessarily processing what we want to say as effectively yes. as we might. And so sometimes there's a certain level of damage control required at the, you know, when it's all over. Um, we can say things that hurt people. We can say things that uh, we would, never normally say or say things in ways that we would never normally say um when somebody has a a a different style of dealing with anger and they tend to internalize it everybody has limits and you know you hear expressions about people going postal you hear expressions about uh the straw that broke the camel's back and somebody's lost it down the road and oftentimes when that person who's been coping and coping and coping and coping for a long time and let's face it we we actually in our workplaces today selectively look 
for people who are copers. Read mm-hmm. the competition posters. We're looking for someone who is able to deal effectively with situations of crisis. Mm-hmm. We're looking for people who can make solid decisions uh, under stress. We're looking for people who can work effectively with a wide variety of personality types. Yes. We're looking for people who are copers. But the problem is that copers are also under pressure as things push buttons for them. And so as a result, when they finally hit that limit, think what happens. Um, it's often very explosive uh, because you've got that pop bottle um, syndrome that, that's gone on. So the challenge then, if, if when people get angry, is that we tend to react And we're not necessarily thinking things through in the same way that that we would be. We're also maybe um, losing our perspective a little bit in terms of understanding where other people are coming from. Anger tends to be very personal. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm mad, therefore, um, I'm going to, I'm going to vent. Uh, I'm going to take action to solve this problem. Uh, And and constructive anger is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm -hmm. There are many times when we need people to address situations that need to be addressed. And in order to do that, people have to reach a certain point of saying, enough, this can't go on. Where we run into problems is when anger becomes destructive. Mm -hmm. And where it starts to create a dynamic where the people who are on the receiving end of it get hurt. So it's interesting. I, I read a book many years ago written by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslish called How to Talk So Your Kids Will Listen, How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. Mm-hmm. And they talk in that book about anger without insult, mm-hmm. the ability to accept feelings without, accept, without accepting actions. It's probably one of the best books on interpersonal relationships that I've ever come across because it... Uh, First off, it's written by two moms, and I, I think there's a lot of, of reality in the world that we can find in families and, and parents and kids. Um, so for me, it was, it was a book that resonated. It was one of the first experiences that I had with this whole issue of conflict management. But this idea of anger without insult, how do we, how do we express our frustrations without creating harm for people who are on the receiving end of it. It's part of the challenge that we run into because we do get our buttons pushed. There are things that trigger um, angry responses. And we can do tremendous harm if our anger is expressed in ways that is destructive and uh, problematic. And it's interesting, as human beings, uh, we judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge other people by the impact their behavior has on us. Um, I was just Gary's going to get angry if I don't go a break, but I want to build on all the <laughs> things you've said here. Uh, maybe we'll do that in the second segment. But the feelings behind anger, toolkits mm-hmm. to deal with the anger, and uh, Gary and anger. I mean, there's so much emotion involved too. Absolutely, when people get angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had Susan Sherhouse on on the emotional component of conflict, which is often not addressed. So it's always the superficial part. And uh, when you go to a doctor, you want to look at the cause. So, so the cause of uh, this point is to get a little break, I guess. And we're going to come back and talk about. Anger Management with Ruth Sermon. Get some tips on dealing with anger. Indeed we are, and uh, we want to remind you that you are listening to our Cross-Cultural Talk program on ADR on Shin 97.9. And we will be right back with a first stop in Somalia. You will enjoy the sweet sounds of South Asia. And Persia is paradise. Chin Radio 97.9 FM and ChinRadio.com. We bring you the world.
And we're back with Chin Radio's cross-cultural talk program here at 97.9 on this Thursday afternoon. Ernie Tannis, uh, our co-host on ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, our special guest this afternoon, a program, by the way, which uh, uh, was recorded just a week ago, and uh, Ruth Sermon is here. She is a specialist uh, in in anger management, and I'm delighted that, uh, Ruth, you were able to join us uh, today, and I thank you for taking the time to drive, as Ernie said, all the way in from Elmont, Ontario. Beautiful village, <laughs> eh? Or is it a city? Sorry. It's a village, but it's not that far away. Oh, well, Ottawa is just a big village, too, isn't it? You know, yeah. Uh, Ruth, I have to ask you before we uh, go, Wes's Fries still there, or is that Arnprior? Maybe I that. don't think it's an Elmont. Okay, so What's it, it's, it's Arnprior. Wes's Fries. Wes's, yeah. Yeah, he has French fries. It's an Arnprior. It's across from Reed Brothers. Pottles and Nans and various other people, but no Wes's. No Wes's. Uh, it's a great story. It's a great success story about this guy that has just this little thing and he sells french fries and they're just fabulous anyway well sometimes people get so angry they get fried they say right isn't that the expression you're well sometimes you know, it's like, you're yeah, fried or yeah, you're you, burnt out or whatever did you like that segue I was uh, yeah it's it's good like you know the, your, your temper reaches the boiling point that's right, you know, right that's right and you know that happens a lot both individually institutionally and internationally and um, you know Ruth has so much vast experience in so many areas that hopefully she'll come back for some more shows in the future but I was talking to her about which ones to sort of focus in on for this segment. Um, and the, some of the areas we're going to maybe talk about now is the uh, interventions uh, in the criminal court system. And we can actually, I'll leave it up to her to maybe relate it to what she saw at the march, because at the international level, um, people say there's uh, groups or states or non-states that create uh, criminal acts. I believe that we should be talking about the criminology of crime rather than talking about based on a culture or a religion. It's all criminology. To me, we can um, talk about parent-kids uh, interactions, uh, faith-based um, resolution, and there's some things about that that intrigue me, and dealing with organizations and workplace conflict. But why don't we start, uh, Ruth, with um, your experience and insights into the um, criminal court system, uh, maybe talk about restorative justice, there's the victim offender idea, and you have a wonderful, uh, a wonderful another concept about victim, villain, and hero. So I'll just open up with those notions and leave it to you to follow through. Well, it, it's an interesting context in that, that in any society, you end up with times when you may have somebody in society who's not functioning necessarily uh, in the best way that they could, both for the benefit of, of the society itself and also for the, the, the individuals. And uh, in our Western culture, we have, we have a tendency when people run afoul of our, um, our laws, our societal expectations and so on, that uh, in the past, I mean, if you, if you go back to the, to the Wild West days, for instance, uh, if you stole my horse, what would I do to you? I would get my gun and I would go out and I would find you and I would either shoot you or I would get a group of my neighbors together and we'd go out and we'd hang you from the closest tree. And there was kind of a vigilante type of justice that was involved. And then, you know, if you look as as we've progressed in our Western culture, uh, we got sheriffs and police and we got laws and we got court systems and we got judges. And then instead of taking you out and shooting you or going and finding you and hunting you down, I would call the police and the police would get involved and they would come and they would arrest you. And we've worked long and hard to develop um, a, a court-based, rights-based, um, legislative-base for protecting our, our societal expectations yes. and our societal, mm -hmm. societal norms. And, and that's important, and we don't ever want to lose that. But if you look at what's happened over the last 
hundred years or so, let's say, just to pick a, a, a time period. We now send things to court that maybe aren't necessarily best served in the court system. And, and so the whole field of restorative justice got started as a way of saying, you know, that there has to be a better way. And if you talk to people like John McDonald from Australia, who was one of the um, people in, in um who was instrumental in getting the field of restorative justice, if you want to call it that, um, started. He says that, you know, kids in particular have a right to learn from their mistakes. And society has a right to to feel that justice has been done. Can you tell our listeners just quickly, what do, you mean, what do we mean by restorative justice? Well, restorative justice is a process, and it has a lot of different forms and so on. I, I've been working in restorative justice fields now since back in the mid-90s, I guess. Um, the restorative justice programs that I'm involved in are uh, often com- what they call community justice-based, which is the idea that you bring together all of the people who are involved and all of the people who are affected by a situation. And... You provide them with an opportunity to have a conversation around what needs to happen in order to repair the harm that has been done and restore relationships if that's appropriate. This process that, that we use is also very, very much about accountability because if you ask people what it is that you want, let's say you go out today at the end of the show and you go to get your car and it's not there. Somebody's lifted it. And so you're now standing on the street corner uh, or in the parking lot trying to figure out how you're going to get home. Well, according to our laws, this is a crime against the, the crown, the queen, not against you. And so we have crown attorneys who prosecute on behalf of the queen. Well, I don't know about you. Um, not that I have anything against the queen in any way, but the queen has never sent me a check to help pay for my car. And I rarely drive the queen to work. So... Part of the challenge around the criminal court system is that the pe- person who has actually been harmed by this situation really doesn't have a place in in the, the system. And, and that's work- they're working to change that. We now have victim impact statements. Um, we now have victim uh, support services and so on, which didn't used to be there. Diversion programs, young offenders, Di- native stuff, abs- all that, right? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that... that we often though say that we're looking for in terms of a, a criminal court system is that we want we want justice to be done. We want to know this person has learned from their mistakes. We want to feel that the situation has been dealt with effectively. We want a timely resolution and we want something that's that makes sense to have happened. Um, there's a lot of frustration sometimes with the sentences that come down. And do people actually learn from getting six months probation and, and or from being incarcerated? Uh, that's questionable. Uh, if you look at recidivism rates, so the people uh, yeah. returning to criminal Return acts is very and, high. And reoffend. Yes. Um, so the process that we use brings together people, and if you think about it, this is accountability to a much higher degree and a very different type of accountability than the court system. For instance, if I arrest or you've been arrested for stealing a car, you now have to be willing a to acknowledge that you did the uh, or that you were involved in in the situation. Um, so there's nothing about pleading not guilty, or there's also nothing about getting off on technicalities. That's not part of it. This is the process about accountability. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, you also need to be willing, as the accused, to sit down and listen to what all the people who come to this circle are going to have to say. And that's a tough thing to do, if you think about it. I remember my mother mar- marching me down the street after when I was about 11 years old, mm-hmm. after I'd stolen a chocolate bar from Scott's General Store in Pakenham, and my mother marching me down the hill to go and give the half-eaten chocolate bar back to Bob Scott, who was the store owner. Mm. And that was a lot of years ago, and yet I still remember the challenge 
of being put in that position and having to go and own okay. up to what I, I've done. I want to pick up on that. And thank God for this statute of limitations. Eh? With that confession, <laughs> you can get charged. But um, I want to talk, ask you to address um, your idea that the difference between accountability and blame. Mm-hmm. And um, you said something about Jolene Adams, who is the director of the Mediation Center of Akwesasne, uh, explained to some uh, uh, police and uh, corrections officials, if you think jails is going to make a big difference to the young Native people that are in the, in the prisons, that's not where it is. The accountability of the community and the next generation is where there's going to be true change. So, you know, you made me think of that. And I'm wondering if well, within, within this, you can talk about your victim, villain, hero thing. It's really, mm-hmm. really great. We talked about Robin Hood and Sheriff Nottingham. So I'll sort of throw that out to you to try to put it together. And bring it all together in a matter of minutes. The the interesting piece of one of the judges up in the Yukon, Judge Barry Stewart, who's worked oh, a yes, lot in this, sure. um, yeah. made a comment great to work. me once, and that was that one look of disdain from someone we care about is more effective at changing behavior than the longest lecture by anyone in a position of authority. Said. And it, one of the th- it's one of the things about accountability that we find. It's when it's when your favorite hockey coach who's part of the circle looks at you and says, I can't believe you did that. Mm-hmm. Or your younger brother goes, didn't you know you weren't supposed to steal things? It's that type of a situation that brings in the accountability for people who are involved in this. And accountability is a, a really interesting piece because if you think about blame, it's often very, very tempting to, to try and figure out uh, who threw the first punch. Mm-hmm. Um, who's at fault here? Who made the mistake? Mm-hmm. Uh, who started this? And the challenge is that blame is a backward-looking historical dynamic. It does nothing to help resolve a problem. Because if you think about it, once a situation has escalated into a full-scale fight, then who threw the pu- first punch really doesn't matter all that much. Now, that's a hard one for us to accept because there's there's a piece that says, oh, yes, but if I didn't throw the first punch, then I'm... Okay, and we get this very kind of, you know, uh, we want to be vindicated. We, we, want, we want somebody else to be wrong because if somebody else is at fault, then it's not about me. Can, can, and, I, can, I, can I leapfrog into a, a mm-hmm. current issue going back to the, to the march and the international situation? Because you just said something that struck me when I hear world leaders say, in terms of this conflict between Lebanon and, and Israel and the whole situation, who caused it? Like, to, to look, to me, it was like, who to say something happened now and... That's going to help us explain everything. It tells me if uh, to tell me if I'm wrong, but it's about it's the same principle. Mm-hmm. Just to say Very this much. started this or this started that. Where does that take us? Well, the problem the problem with blame is that if I'm busy trying to figure out who started it, then how far back do I go? Yeah. You know, if if you watch a group of kids on a playground and all of a sudden one child hauls off and hits the other child. Now, did that child throw the first punch? Maybe. But what prompted that child to throw the punch? Was the other kid, you know, calling them names, maybe? Mm -hmm. Are they any less accountable or any less responsible for the evolution of the situation just because they didn't throw the first punch? Maybe it was verbal. Maybe there's a history. And so when we look at the global things, how far back do we go? And what's going on? And it's interesting, Gary Harper, who is a mediator in Vancouver, and I don't know if you know him, but he's done some interesting work around um, conflict and fairy tales. Oh, yes. And so if you tell a fairy tale, you know, once upon a time, there was a princess. And the princess lived in a castle, and she went out for a walk one day. And as she was walking through the woods, the evil witch uh, grabs her, kidnaps her, and throws her in a tower. Now, while she's sitting in the tower, what's she doing? What's she saying? Help me. Help me. Right? Mm-hmm. Who's she looking for? The hero. The hero. The guy on the, sh- in, uh, the, the shining white horse who's going to ride in and rescue the situation. Right? I got a star for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> a warm fuzzy for you, Ernie. <laughs> but if you think about it in terms of a conflict situation, yeah. it's highly unusual, or if not rare, for human beings to paint themselves as the villain. So if you think about the fairy tale, you've got the victim who's the princess, you've got the villain who's the witch, and you've got the hero who's the um, gonna ri- that the knight in shining armor who's going to ride in. We have the same archetypes, the same players in conflict situations. Mm-hmm. And as human beings, we tend not to paint ourselves as the villain. Think about it. When was the last time you heard somebody say, listen, I was just walking down the street, and for absolutely no reason, I hauled off and hit him. You hear it the other way around all the time. I was just sitting there minding my own business. Look what they did to me. Yes. And so we can become our own hero or we can go looking for another hero. The problem is we get caught in a in a triangle between the victims, the villains, and the heroes, where if I see myself as a victim, I can't be a victim unless I have a villain. There has to be a villain. Yes. And if I paint you as the villain... And then I decide that I've got to solve this problem or I'm going to go looking for a hero. So I'm going to ask Gary to deal with you or I'm going to go and I'm going to do something myself. If you think about the dynamics of it, we can end up with a really interesting situation because as I become my own hero and decide to right this wrong, the actions that I take may in many cases, almost be the same as and the you actions. become the villain. And then you start to see me as the well, villain. Doesn't this- I see you as... It, and everybody plays all the roles. Yeah, and if Gary rides in as the hero and tries to solve this, and it doesn't work, then how do we see him? Yeah, He becomes the villain. You know, you mentioned the playground. How often have we heard kids, oh, he started it, yeah, right? Yeah. Because we can rationalize our own behavior to the nth degree. And I come back to what I said before the last break. We judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge other people by the impact their behavior has on us. And that has to be one of the most powerful... Uh, quotes that I have ever come across. Mm-hmm. And as human beings, we can rationalize our own behavior to the nth degree. Wow. Is someone a terrorist or are they a freedom fighter? Well, it depends on your perspective. Yeah, so I mean, it's hard to rationalize how we can only take a short time to uh, to talk about all these things. But um, uh, back in the late 80s, I, I was using an expression I was told not to because the politicians and diplomats wouldn't like it. But you make me think that, that what happens in the school playground in principle, is no different what happens in the international arena because everything you've just said can be applied really in the current situation. Uh-huh. Do you want to know the main difference, Ernie? It's the height of the players. <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> they're taller. And the sticks and stones they use. Yeah, now. They're bigger. No, it's true. Eh? It's like and the, and the size of the weapons. Yep. Yeah, it's amazing. That's right. Wow. All right. Well, uh, we will be back with uh, Ernie Tannis and Ruth Sermon after this uh, very short break on Chin Radio ninety seven point nine, our Thursday program on ADR Alternative Dispute Resolution. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Chin Radio is the nation's capital's only multicultural voice. Broadcasting in over 20 different languages. Streaming online at www.chinradio.com. You are listening to Ottawa's definitive multicultural station. So we're back with you on Chin Radio at 97.9. We have about uh, about a dozen minutes left to our program, and uh, uh, we want to in- reintroduce uh, our co-host to you, Ernie Tannis, on uh, our, our program, which, by the way, for those of you who just uh, may have tuned in recently, uh, was a show that we recorded uh, last Thursday, uh, not long after the silent march on... Uh, 
uh, here in Ottawa on Ottawa streets uh, from uh, the uh, Human Rights Memorial up to the uh, the War Memorial. And Ernie, our our special guest, is with us to talk about uh, anger management. So, yes. without any further ado, and the um, the march was for peace. Mm-hmm. in the Middle East, but uh, I think world peace through inner peace, and I am uh, really enjoyed um, all of this, including that last segment where you, I found you put in nice plain language how to look at things, and if I want to build on anger, manage your anger people for this or that, and you mentioned the title of a book, which made me think there's a lot of books uh, that you read. There's one book called How to Deal with Difficult People, and everybody's buying the same book, so what does that say? And also, well, another, there's another course you give. It was a nice title. Well, actually, just to pick up on the books for a second, one of the, the my favorite books is called Dealing with people you can't stand. <laughs> and his comment in there is that everybody is somebody's difficult person mm-hmm. at some point in their life. So, yes. you know, uh, think about the number of times when you may have been somebody else's difficult person and the challenges that we encounter when we have to deal with difficult people. Um, been teaching courses in conflict management and, and harassment awareness and interest-based negotiation for years now. And I finally um, started to put together a course that uh, we've been having a tremendous amount of fun with called I'm Okay, It's Everybody Else Who Needs Help. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems to resonate with people for some reason. Yeah, uh, right. But it's on it's on the challenges that we can encounter as human beings and the traps that we can fa- uh, fall into when we start to get involved in relationships with other people. And so it was interesting, you know, as I was uh, participating in that March for Peace today and walking up Elgin Street with quite a few other people. I was surprised at how many people were there. I would mm-hmm. guess there were a couple of hundred and uh, and listening to the two women who were reading the letter that they had written jointly uh, around the Palestinian-Israeli uh, crisis in the Middle East and their wish for peace and their, their wish that no more Palestinian children would die and no more Israeli children would die, the wish that no more Palestinian mothers would grieve and no more Israeli mothers would grieve, and there was a lot more to it than that. And it was interesting, just going back to what we were talking about before the break and the victims, villains, and heroes piece, Um, if I see myself as a victim and I see you as the villain and I'm looking to Gary to be the hero, how do we get off that triangle? Because then you start to see me as the villain. I start to see uh, myself as the victim and and we all play all those roles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the the, the interesting piece is that the quickest and simplest way to get off those, uh, get off that triangle between the victims, villains and heroes is to stop and, and step back from feeling victimized, feeling like, like, somebody else has done this to you to step back from the labels it's their fault they need to change they need to solve the problem i have a a cartoon that i use often in training courses a picture of two guys in a canoe facing opposite directions both paddling like crazy and with one caption coming from both of them that says everything will be just fine as soon as he changes (laughs) ain't that the truth the the interesting challenge is that when you look at the cartoon there's a big set of falls about uh you know 50 feet from the canoe and neither of them is aware of the fact that you know they're they're imminently in danger of going over the falls. Oh my goodness! And you know when you, it, it's, I want to give a course called the Art of Interruption. I'm just practicing today. I hope you think I'm doing a good job. Yes, so you're, you're doing a wonderful <laughs> job. <laughs> uh, but um, you made me think when you talked about what happened today, which would be the time this year is last week. Um, interesting about some if some people were angry that the letter didn't mention Lebanon, and it turned out later that that letter was written before this recent conflict, and they were just. They didn't. I think my understanding was, and we talked to the speaker at the end, was they wanted to show that this was predated. This wasn't just because of this. This is right. something that was thought of before, and they they might have thought on retrospect to add something. And mm-hmm. um, but they had to. They apologized. 
Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, I'm sorry if you so then you get into the apology and the forgiveness and and um, our guest Vern Redekop said, well, now there's a chance to even address that even more. And that helped a lot. So uh-huh. there was something about uh, fixing things up and people, as you said, not intentionally trying to do something to harm somebody. And that was an interesting dynamic. We had to take care of that in the last minute and a half of the show. Yeah. And it was an interesting challenge. Well, that whole that whole piece about intention is a really interesting one, and it's one that we might talk about again another time, this disentangling intent from impact. Because uh, there's a huge difference between intent and impact. And part of the challenge is, you know, if one of your kids comes to you and says, what did you do with my shoes? Um, it's an interesting piece. happens in most families. Uh, it's happened in my family innumerable times. And I remember at one point saying to to the child who was standing in front of going, where did you put my shoes? I said, wait, wait a second, wait a second. It is, your in, is it your perception that I spent half of last night awake dreaming up places to hide them just to make your life miserable? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we often infer some level of malicious intent yeah. when in reality there was no connection. Uh, And it comes back to we judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge other people by the impact that a situation or their behavior has on us. And so if I've been negatively impacted, it's very, very simple to say, oh, obviously they intended to hurt me. And yet when you sit down and as you well know, in a mediation session, oftentimes the the conversation is around intent and impact. Mm -hmm. And what were the intentions? Why were decisions made? What what? are the factors that contributed to a situation. And it's a very uh, interesting um, learning curve, often for people, when they start to realize that there was no malicious intent here. Things happened, and people have been negatively impacted, but there was no malicious intent. And so it's, it's that opportunity for people to sit down and have those open conversations that can often make the, the difference in terms of whether I see you as the villain or whether you see me as the villain. Uh, because there's this whole piece around intent and impact that can very easily get caught up in the dynamic and can add fuel to the fire. And when we look, uh, whether we're looking at uh, family situations, whether we're looking at workplace situations, whether we're looking at global situations, um, this ability to, as Fisher and Yuri say in you know their classic book on interest-based negotiation, go to the balcony, take a look at the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Can we do that? Yeah. It's a challenge when, when we're caught up in a situation. It's a challenge when we feel hurt to take that step back. And yet, ultimately, um, our survival as a species, our survival as a culture, our survival as human beings depends on our ability to get along with each other and with the planet on which we live. And we you know we, we all the time during the show, for all the shows, we always talk about the difference between rights-based and interest-based, and that's mm-hmm. understanding interest-based. And you talk about parent and kids, and there's a famous training with the orange about the parent coming in to mm-hmm. kids fighting over an orange and it's my turn to have the orange and they go from the parent being the arbitrator to the mediator and finding out that the kid wants the peel and the other one wants the rind for different things so when you it, it, it's just getting people to use these tools but you use the word entanglement and to tie back to your original metaphor of the dance there's that famous expression you know, it takes two to tangle right Absolutely. and sometimes more before and you know in difficult people sometimes I find for myself sometimes I find myself difficult for myself you know and Mm -hmm. it's finding that accountability but in terms of people accepting uh, that they are part of the problem and um, uh, that it's not just someone has a solution but to accept that you're part of the problem is a hard nut to crack sometimes well it is because you know it's, it's much easier if the problem is all belongs to somebody else you know because then it's their fault and they need to change and you know we get this kind of sanctimonious 
uh, halo that says, well, I'm okay, and, and it's their problem, and as soon as they change, everything will be fine. And you see it in union management stuff. You know, if only management would get, um, if only the union would get realistic. You're hearing it from both sides, especially when you're a mediator. But the, the part of the challenge around um, personal contributions, uh, going back to my grandmother, uh, I don't remember what I had done, but at one point I had a conversation with her and I said to her, uh, you know, it, it was totally unfair. These people should never have done this to me. And she looked at me and she said, uh, Ruth, I'm 95 years old and I've been involved in a lot of situations in my life. And in all the situations I've been a part of, there's one thing that is always the same. I bring me to every situation. Mm-hmm. And so I own part of everything that happens to me. And law of attraction says the same thing. If you look at you know some of the work out there on complexity theory and intention and so on, uh, that, that we are co-creators of our reality. That's a hard pill to swallow sometimes for people because if I own part of everything that happens, then I also own part of needing to be part of the solution. And that may mean I need to change. Now, sometimes my contribution to the, to the situation is very, very minor. And sometimes it's huge. Mm-hmm. But I own whatever piece it is. Even if all I've done is chosen not to say something about a situation, then I own that I have helped to perpetuate the situation because I've chosen not to, to say, I don't like this, or I don't agree with this. And so sometimes our contribution can be very small. Other times, it, it's a lot bigger. But accountability is me saying, I screwed up, or me saying, I've made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And coming back to Grandma, (laughs) she had this really interesting collection of pithy one-liners. She said to me um, at one point when I had done something that ranked pretty high on the stupidometer scale, uh, (laughs) and I told her, I said, I don't know how to fix this. And she looked at me and she said, well, Ruth, if you're going to get run out of town anyhow, then you might just as well go to the head of the line and make it look like a parade. (laughs) Yeah, and it took true. me a long time to figure out that what she was talking about was the accountability piece. Yeah. That if you make a mistake, if something is wrong and you've contributed to it, the best thing one can do is walk in and say, you know something, folks, I made a mistake. And that is, uh, you don't hear that enough. We don't. We don't have enough time uh, to carry. You are going to have to come back. we got a couple of minutes left. I wanted you to talk about one thing mm-hmm. more, but I know not, not, my daughter always asks, you know, life's not fair. If you could start with that understanding, then you're not as frustrated. But I'm always interested in conflict prevention. I think of the canary in the in the mine shaft. Mm-hmm. They used to put the canary in because they can, people can't smell the dangerous coming. And I've, as we talked, there's fire prevention. We all know about the avoiding stuff. And conflict prevention doesn't get enough of funding or attention or resources. But it's getting more airtime and more education. Which we just a have a little thing. bit time left. Um, what can you talk about? Watching out for something. You had a beautiful diagram thing that Bill Yuri did uh, that human beings wait to the end before they really we, pay attention to what well, we caused tend, it. We tend as human beings not to deal with situations until they reach crisis mode. We we hit what what I would call a pain point where we can't stand what's going on any longer. And now we have to take action. And now we have to get things resolved. And now we've got to get everything done. And people will say, you know, well, we need to prevent this from happening again in the future. And true enough, oftentimes there are very solid prevention strategies that we need to put in place. The challenge is that if we're in crisis mode, then first thing that we need to do is deal with the crisis. Mm -hmm. And that may mean anything from containing it to doing damage control, but essentially to buy time 
to buy, um, to bring ourselves back down from crisis mode to a point where we can start to resolve things. And then once we've got the initial crisis resolved, then what can we bring into place in terms of preventing? It, it's uh, it's difficult to bring prevention strategies into a crisis because they won't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, it's not prevention that we need, it's crisis management. But it's very with, the, important. with the prevention piece in the background all the time saying, as human beings, hopefully we're going to wise up, we're going to get smarter, and we're going to start to say, we need to prevent these situations from escalating in the first place. Well, as I went to Lebanon the first time two years ago, I had toothache for three years. I had a root canal the week before I went, and uh, it's a feeling of a root canal now, and we have to do something about the root canal and then mm-hmm. go back to take care of the teeth for the future. We hope that can be applied back to the Middle East, that we can take care of that pain. I'd be happy to bring you some floss. Oh, good. My wife, floss your teeth, floss your teeth. Interesting you talk about roots. And our guest is Ruth. Yeah, that's right. Oh, you know, I hope I'm not having an influence on you. uh, uh, Ruth, uh, thank you for your time Ruth Sermon. Yes. Canmediate.com. Yeah. Thank you for your time today. And yeah, come on back. The door's always open. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I sincerely hope to get get a chance to come back. It would be fun. Perfect. Great. Thank you. This is Chin 97.9.